Hallelujah. Father, as we have sung these songs, we have celebrated the reality in the hearts of every believer that a fundamental change has taken place, that a miracle has occurred, that a resurrection has ensued, whereby our hearts, once dead in trespasses and sins, have been resurrected to newness of life, that our souls, once caught in the miry clay, the quagmire of our wickedness, have now been ransomed by the blood of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would encourage and equip us and give us the strength today to understand more fully what took place in the fundamental transformation of every believer here. As we open up your holy word and see the implications of the gospel, I pray that you would write them even more indelibly upon the tables of our heart. I pray that through the proclamation of your word today, you would equip your church and the saints to go forth and to proclaim Christ with more clarity, more boldness, with more accuracy, and Lord, by your grace and by your Spirit's work with more fruit. We pray, Lord, that your word would go forth to a lost and dying world, Father, that they might see the light, that they might turn from sin, that they might place faith in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the refuge, the rock, the foundation. We thank you for the church, the stones tightly fitted through the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We thank you for the champion of our salvation, the founder of our faith, the cornerstone of the future hope we have in glory. We thank you that you, Jesus Christ, rule and reign at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that the successful campaign of your kingdom's advancing will continue until every enemy is placed under your feet. And we thank you that we have that eternal hope that even the last enemy, death itself, will eventually succumb to our Savior and Lord. Now, as we turn to your holy word, open our ears to hear, our spiritual eyes to see, and our affections to love your holiness revealed in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great opportunity we have today to gather as the bride of Christ. It was a glorious day yesterday as well as we witnessed the wedding. As we turn to our scriptures today... We should be reminded by a Christian wedding that it is a picture, the relationship of bride to groom, our relationship with the Lord as His church. In this sense, every true believer can relate to the experience of the bride. Christ our Lord has sacrificed His life and His selfless love laid down His life for us, His people, His bride indeed. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Galatians. Today is Communion Sunday. The Lord's table is spread before us, if you will, in the bread and in the cup. In our uh, communion series, if you will, we've been going through the book of Galatians. We're nearing the end. We're in the last chapter now. Our text today comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10. The title of this morning's message is to walk is walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. This phrase comes from the prior chapter, verse 25 of Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then we have 10 helpful verses that describe to us in context what it means exactly to walk by the Spirit. Paul gives us helpful examples to this end. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to catalog these applications of the fruit of the Spirit in the context of Galatians and in the context of the early church. 
to glean from the text helpful applications of what it means to walk by the Spirit. What does the fruit of the Spirit look like by some examples, some for instances in real time? Would you stand with me again out of reverence for God's Word as we behold these truths together? Listen as I proclaim God's holy and infallible Word. This is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. The Apostle begins, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will by the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will by the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So you recall the context of our prior message, I trust. It's a very common passage of Scripture. It includes, among other things, a list of Christian virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and we have this list of nine characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul goes on in that verse to say, against such things there is no law. Having thoroughly condemned, that is Paul in his, the context of Galatians, having thoroughly condemned the theological error which animi- animated the Judaizers, if you remember, They were teaching that a a partial return to the law was partially necessary for salvation. Paul thoroughly condemns this theological error. The imposition of the law fulfilled in Christ, now represented to the church in this error as a prerequisite for salvation. In a word, legalism, Paul rejects this. And as he does so, he details the distinct differences between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Notice works versus fruit. Works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. Paul proceeds to offer real-time scenarios. The context of our passage today in the typical church where the fruit of the Spirit is being begged or is begging to be lived out. There are opportunities through relationships, especially within the church, that beg for the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, that demand the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is necessary for the church to continue to survive. The church of Jesus Christ is unsustainable without these Christian virtues operative in the life and in the interaction of its members. The circumstances and relationships among the believers in Galatia are no doubt Paul's first audience. And this church presented a list of pressing needs, and to these he writes, 
and to these he addresses, and these he addresses. But as God's greater will would have it, as providence would have. However, there, the shortcomings and pressing issues of the Galatian church provide, nevertheless, even for us today, a classic, if you will, for instance, opportunity. A for instance opportunity to illustrate what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in the life of the church. This is an opportunity for the church of every way, of every age, to view uh, godly and Christ-like behavior in action. In this way, Paul rounds out his instruction from the ideal in the abstract, i.e., a list of Christian virtues, as we've just read, the fruit of the Spirit. He now rounds out his teaching to include practical examples of applied godliness, practical examples of applied love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. This passage continues along the theme of the effects of the transformative experience of regeneration. What is new when a believer is born again? Regeneration means to be made new. The Scriptures say you are a new creation if you are in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. What's new about the new creation? What changes might we expect? Again, our passage answers this. Continues along these lines of the effects of, transform, of the transformative experience of grace and of our salvation. Though works are not the cause or even a contributor to our salvation, they certainly follow from a legitimate born-again life. Let me read that again because I believe it's a theme, perhaps the major theme, theme of Galatians. Though works are not the cause or a contributor to our salvation, they certainly follow from a legitimate born-again life. In this way, they mark the believer's allegiance to a new king. Young people, who is our new king? When you become a Christian, God, I hear, who else? Uh, more specifically, who is our king? Who do we worship and serve? Jesus, that's correct. Through the works, or as we see in this way, Paul's instructions mark the believer's allegiance to a new king. And as such, we have a new moral authority that governs our actions and affections. A moral authority can be summarized by one word, law. Thus, the fulfilling of Christ's moral imperative, the fulfilling of His law, the obedience to our King, is detailed by walking in the Spirit, or is described as walking in the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit, therefore, the true believer fulfills or obeys the law of Christ. Paul's words provide precise exposition of the life of a Christian. Uh, they provide a precise exposition of the life a Christian ought to and will, by grace, grow to exhibit. Paul refutes the legalism of the Judaizers even as he draws from the kingdom language of Jesus' gospel proclamation. And for future study, you might consider Matthew 4 and 5. Jesus enters into this world and His ministry preaching the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And let me remind you of four categories of kingdom that were the theme of our Matthew series years ago. Sovereign, subjects, realm, and law. Four fundamental aspects of any kingdom. Any kingdom has a sovereign. So be the king. You young people identified our king as Jesus Christ. That is correct. Subjects, those who are underneath him. We have subjects in good standing and subjects under judgment. Realm, the reach of His authority, which is the ends of the universe and, in, and beyond, if it could be said, 
And finally, law, His word, His proclamation, His will, His decree, His moral imperatives, as we have said. Thus, in this context, Paul lays out details, directives for our lives. In our passage today, depending on how you isolate them, there are roughly nine directives that I want to make the case correspond to the nine exemplary fruits of the Spirit that the Apostle cataloged in chapter 5. And these appear under three headings or three principles. This will be our main three points today. Here's a heading. Three principles illustrating the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church. Number one, serving others. So what does it look like when the fruit of the Spirit is operative in the life of the church? One, number one, it looks like serving others, quite simply. Number two, self-assessment. Self-assessment. Looking at yourself, evaluating yourself, where your spiritual maturity, where your strengths and weaknesses are in light of God's standard and truth. And finally, third principle, sowing and reaping. Where we make our investment and what that investment is, and where we expect to return. These are the three principles illustrating the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church. Number one, serving others. Notice verses 1 and 2 of our text today, Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Watch, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When the fruit of the Spirit is evident in the life of the church, it will take the form of serving others. And here this service is detailed in caring about other people's spiritual walk and spiritual life. First of all, we could say that gentleness is illustrated by the act of restoring a believer who is falling into sin. First of all, before I get into that though, let us notice a contrast. Notice how serving others is contrasted with chapter 5:25. Paul says if we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit and then I guess 26 is the verse I'm after. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So as Paul preaches, he often places the works of the flesh, let's say on one hand, the fruit of the Spirit on the other, and then he'll exemplify these. He has done so in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, he says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and so on. But then he summarizes these vices by three phrases in verse 26, uh, becoming conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. That is to say, in context here, the principle of the fruit of the Spirit in serving others is in direct opposition to, it's polar opposite of becoming conceited. Someone who is conceited cares about whom? If someone is prideful, who do they care the most about? Young people again, if you struggle with pride, who do you care the most about? If you're prideful, if you're haughty, if you're conceited, who do you care the most about? Um, Satan, someone says, self, someone says. Self, I'll, I'll accept that. If you are prideful, if you are conceited, you care most about yourself. The idea of serving others takes a second place to serving self. Therefore, someone who you consider a brother, notice that phrase right from the beginning, is someone that you must realize is in your family. As such, you have an obligation to, you have an unbreakable relationship with. You don't see very often a b- zoning. Another brother, do you? 
You don't often see a, someone saying, he's not my brother anymore. Why? Because this powerful bond and union of family is understood culturally, at least with siblings these days. As such, Paul uses this as an analogy. He says, brothers, immediately recognizing the family obligations and connections we have to one another in Christ. And then he says, in a call to serve, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are, who are spiritual should restore him, and he should do it in what? A spirit of gentleness. And you'll recall, gentleness is indeed one of the fruits of the Spirit. So gentleness is illustrated by this action, the will and the, and the activity, the obedience to the call to restore a believer, a brother, if you will, a family member who has fallen into sin. This provides a helpful directive for us to put feet to our faith, to notice what it looks like when the fruit of the Spirit is actually lived in action. You may have had a calendar on your wall where each month is, say, a fruit of the Spirit, and it's pictured by a beautiful scene. And there's a sort of contemplative, you know, somber, whatever attitude that pictures like this invoke. You may have memorized the fruits of the Spirit and thought, these are really neat things to think about and to meditate on. But if our theology remains a picture on a calendar or a mystical idea and is never tested in the fires of relationship within the church, it has not taken root and foothold in the life of the church. And we are not walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is not having a calendar of nature, each one titled with you know, a fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Walking by the Spirit is taking the difficult opportunity, if you happen to be in a strong place in your life right now, to bear with the failings of the weak, to come alongside in a heart to restore and to return to a place of stability, a believer who is faltering right now. Condemnation comes quite naturally to the self-righteous, to the sinner, to the one who seeks to self-justify. If we see someone falling into sin, it's much easier and much more natural to say, oh man, you know, that's really a shame. And to almost uh, take the opportunity to compare yourself among them, more about that in the course of this message. However, walking by the Spirit and real evidence of fruit is when we come along someone in a situation like that and with a heart to help them to return in repentance, stability, and obedience in their faith to again fulfill the law of Christ. Gentleness is illustrated in the restoration of a believer who is in sin. Secondly, self-control is illustrated in serving others in some sense too. Notice what we have in the next phrase. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, sometimes in our efforts to help others, we might fall prey to temptation ourselves. Pay careful attention in this wicked world where temptation arises on every turn. Remember as a helpful analogy or imagery, Vanity Fair, if you will, in Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim on his journey has a heart and a desire, a mission, a call to serve the Lord, single-mindedness, to stay on the path. But as he enters... This sea of distraction, you have a Ferris wheel here, carnival barker over there, jugglers, sword swallowers, and, you know, flaming tricks and this and that, and magic and seance and whatever. 
suddenly in this imagery, we see how easy it is for, our, for us to be pulled one way or the other by the distracting influences of a wicked culture. Self-control is illustrated in our text by watchfulness given a sober understanding of how much temptation actually surrounds us. Why is it important? Let me give you an aside, let me, a parenthetical here. Why is it so important that Paul would illustrate in real time what self-control and what gentleness and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit looks like? Let me submit to you, it's because without a specific application of each of these, the world in its sinfulness and in its own ideas might affirm them uh, in theory. However, when they are qualified according to the law of Christ, that is where the distinction really occurs. This was a sad week. I don't know if it happened this week, perhaps last. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard many of you, perhaps. But I remember when I was in college, uh, around that time, a book came out called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. You guys remember that one? And uh, for its whatever, uh, you know, people criticize it. Sometimes it becomes cool to criticize a movement after the fact. But at that time, the idea of honoring God in romantic relationships had a moving effect on me. And that book did produce fruit. Some one point, as I see it, some 1.2 million copies were sold. The sad news is today, its author has not only rejected the thesis of his book, but he's rejected Christianity itself. His name is Joshua Harris, and I read this online recently. He says, quote, I am learning that no group has the market cornered on grace. This week, now this is all false, by the way. This is all complete junk. This is complete heresy, but listen, and listen with discernment. I am learning that no group has the market cornered on grace. This week, I've received grace from Christians, atheists, evangelicals, uh, ex-evangelicals, straight people, LGBTQ people, and everyone in between. Of course, there have also been strong words of rebuke and so on and so forth. He goes on. He goes on to say, Martin Luther said that the entire life of the believers should be repentance. There's a beauty in that sentiment regardless of your view of God. False. There's a beauty in the sentiment of repentance regardless of your view of God. False. I have lived in repentance for the past several years. Listen to what he says he's repenting of. Repenting of my self-righteousness, good, we should repent of that. My fear-based approach to life, not sure what that means. The teaching of my books, so far as it represented the Scripture, false. Of my views of women in the church, so far as they represent the views of Scripture, false. My approach to parenting, just to name a few, and listen. But I specifically want to add to this list now, to the LGBT community, I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against, quote, marriage equality, and he continues apace. So do you get what's happening here? He's affirming repentance of a sort. He's affirming some of the fruit of the Spirit of a sort, uh, uh, if you will, at least if they were in name only. In other words, Joshua Harris now thinks that kindness towards a homosexual means accepting their lifestyle. He now believes that being uh, peaceful, and patient, joyful, and loving means accepting the world on its terms. He thinks that repentance means now turning away from that judgmental position that he once held, that there is such a thing as a universal moral authority. So this is why we need the whole counsel of God. The Christian life is not a list of abstract virtues. It's a list of virtues in a particular context. 
There is no such thing as true love, joy, peace, patience, patience, gentleness, and self-control unless those things are operative in a way that fulfills the law of Christ. There is no true joy unless, unless the joy that you are pursuing is according to obedience to the maker and creator of this universe, to the sovereign of this world, to Christ Himself. And that is why Paul illustrates these things in, re- in this context. There are those who place a value on kindness. There are those who place a value on love. But it's love by their definition. This application section is necessary as we observe the world as we see it. Our culture is fine with these virtues as long as they reserve the right to determine how and when and to whom they apply. No, keep watch. Keep watch, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch according to what? Keep watch according to an objective, universal, authoritative, moral standard. When we see these words in the text, like transgression, brothers, if any one of you is caught in any transgression, that implies exactly what I just said, an objective, universal, authoritative, moral standard, the law of Christ. Keep watch, lest you yourself be tempted. Gentleness illustrated, self-control illustrated. Finally, kindness illustrated under point one, a principle illustrating the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church serving others, and it takes the shape of a kindly disposition in verse two. Paul gives this admonition. Turn to Romans 15 as we read this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? We've mentioned already that the law of Christ entails His instructions, His moral authority, His imperatives, but also entails a positive duty, not only the thou shalt not, or this is wicked, but also love of neighbor, love of neighbor as oneself, and so forth. And this takes real shape and real foothold. True kindness is illustrated when we bear each other's burdens. Paul expounds on this in one of my favorite passages as far as the life of the church is concerned in Romans 15. Notice he says in verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Same language, just expanded, he goes on, and not to please ourselves, serving others. This is the principle uh, that illustrates the fruit of the Spirit alive in the life of the church. We who are, are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Notice the inspiration and source is the gospel. These are gospel patterns of living. But as it is written, continuing verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Romans, Galatians, kindness is illustrated in this charge to bear each other's burdens. 
Paul is constantly emphasizing, reiterating, and modeling patterns of gospel living. The patience that Christ has shown you, show that patience to others. The kindness that Christ has demonstrated to you and loving you first and laying down His life for you, and quite simply, those gospel terms extend that toward others and so forth. In this way, the fruit of the Spirit will be lived out in the life of the church. That's principle one. Principle two, illustrating the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church, self-assessment. It entails self-assessment. Verses three through five, for if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is warning language, and this is a charge to analyze ourselves, to look inward, to judge the quality of our own spiritual lives. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So you see the overarching theme here of self-assessment? This is the opposite of provoking one another. Again, we contrast this to those three terms in verse 26. Paul says, again, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In order to provoke someone, you are concerned about them. You are picking a fight with them. You are, it's an outward, critical, and a vindictive attitude or mentality. But for someone who is assessing himself, whose first concern is his own responsibility and his own inward standing before the Lord, it's the opposite of provoking one another. It's almost like provoking oneself, shaking yourself out of self-deception. Hey, listen up. When do we do this and how do we do this? We do this when we read the Word and let it proclaim authoritatively how we need to change in the morning when we open our Scriptures. We do this by submitting to the Word of God rightly divided and authoritatively proclaimed in the preaching of the Holy Word. When it's done so correctly, it often makes us squirm in our seat because we realize, oh, there is an area where I have tolerated self-deception. I have carved out an area of my my understanding, my, my idea of the way I want to organize my life that is more my idea than Scripture. And now... As the two-edged sword of the Word, which is quick and powerful and can rightly discern and divide between flesh and spirit, as that is proclaimed and as I submit to it, I recognize these areas. And so self-assessment is the fruit of the Spirit in action. Faithfulness, for instance, is illustrated by self-assessment. If one avoids self-deception, he will continue faithful. Faithfulness entails, among other things, a sober self-analysis, a primary antidote To counter self-deception is the meaningful interaction of relationships within a healthy cross-section, a healthy representation of the body of Christ. And the older I get in the faith, and hopefully the more mature, the more I appreciate my brothers who have stronger convictions than me. At first, it might feel threatening because I analyze myself in light of someone who has a clearer understanding and more consistent application of a particular truth. And initially, it makes me feel lesser than. But really, what I ought to do in light of those who are a good witness and testimony is be inspired and encouraged. Someone simply desiring to live according to the Word can help you self-assess. Again, we mentioned the Word of God itself, but also the Word of God lived out as people walk in the Spirit. That's the iron sharpening iron. 
That's the bearing with each other's burdens. That's the fulfilling of the law of Christ that takes place when we are walking by the Spirit. Now, these kind of interactions are necessary. If we are an island all to ourselves, we are alone with our own ideas. And we know from the analogies, from the imagery that Paul gives of the body of Christ, that no person alone as an island with their own thoughts, with their individual thinking, unsubmitted to the parts that when operating together are connected to the head Jesus Christ can sustain a robust and healthy spiritual life. We are simply not designed to be an individual, an island, or isolated when it comes to our spiritual walk. There is a necessary connection where each member of the body of Christ supplies that which others lack. And when this connection is beautifully intertwined, we all are the better for it. Someone is a better foot than I am, as it were. Someone has more of a passion for evangelism than I do and has already put, in, put feet to his faith. I might have a clear understanding of the message he ought to bring, but together we are more than the sum of our individuals floundering as we seek to glorify God and expand his kingdom in this world. Now, this is a message that cuts counterculture oftentimes. It's a message we don't often want to hear. It's hard to submit to, requires humility, requires a sober self-assessment. But as we do so, we will find our faithfulness increasing and our susceptibility to self-deception waning, and we will have a sharper, more consistent, more uh, compelling testimony, a more rigorous commitment to behold ourselves in the mirror of Christ's law, in the mirror of God's holy word, and to repent according to that standard and to grow. Peace is also illustrated in the call to self-assessment. How is it illustrated? Well, if we spend more time testing our own words, uh, our own works, uh, as Paul gives us instruction here, um, then it entails an attitude that might flood our souls where we can live at peace with others. Let me explain. It uh, addresses, so verses 4 and 5 are a little bit difficult in the translation. In verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. The translation is a little bit cumbersome there, but uh, consider this summary. This, these two verses address the tendency of the human condition to judge others by lofty ideals even as we judge ourselves by the failings of lesser individuals. Uh, this, again, the tendency in the human condition is to judge others by lofty ideals, even as we judge ourselves by the failings of lesser individuals. I'm going to hearken back to my illustration of Joshua Harris, who has now come out, come out and publicly apostatized. Let me ask you a probing question and I would ask you in your heart to honestly answer. When I told you of this collapse a few moments ago, was there something inside that felt better about yourself? At least I haven't done that. Was there some reassurance that you falsely gathered from that, that you were tempted to feel better about yourselves because I haven't fallen as he has? You see, on the one hand, apostasy illustrates that there is no arguing about the objective truth of God's Word. But on the other hand, we must be careful 
that we don't become self-deceived and judge our own holiness on the curve, that we look to others' failings and other fallings, even a wicked culture, and think, well, compared to that, I certainly have a lot more together and then feel good about ourselves. This is what verse 4 is getting at when it says, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. You see, if I judge my spirituality against Joshua Harris, who has now left the faith, I seem really holy. But if I judge myself and my current spiritual status against what the Word of God requires of me, suddenly I'm falling short. And I see more, reason, more areas for growth, more cause for repentance. This is the idea. This helps me to live at peace with others. Because I remember the grace that is required, that was required to save me. I am well aware if I soberly assess my own spiritual failings and shortcomings, the grace that is required to live with me, particularly my wife, has to feel the burden of my sometimes painfully slow sanctification. Not to overuse myself as an example, I only do so because I know each and every one of you can relate And as we think of that, how much room there is between me and the perfection of a holy God, now it's easier to live at peace with others because you know that you're not easy to live with and that those who do so, do so because they also love the Lord and they appreciate that uh, opportunity that we have through growing relationships to encourage one another in the faith, be quick to forgive when we are wrong, to quick to point each other toward Christ, to grow all the while. Thirdly, patience. This dovetails with peace, self-assessment. Underneath that heading, the fruit of the Spirit of peace is illustrated. Also, patience in real time, bearing our own load falls into this category. Again, Paul is emphasizing this directive. Be far more concerned with the calling of personal holiness than obsessing over the shortcomings of others. To Corresponding verses you might look at in your own time, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 2 Corinthians 10, 12. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that's that passage that says, you know, search yourself daily to see if you're in the faith. Take seriously the call to self-assessment. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 speaks about those who foolishly compare themselves among themselves. It's a call to the church to return to sober self-assessment and to illustrate the fruit of the Spirit by taking seriously in the light of God's holy word and truth their own spiritual walk. Final point this morning. Again, principles illustrating the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the church. As the fruit of the Spirit uh, 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 takes traction in the life of the believer, it's evidenced in serving others, it's evidenced in this kind of rigorous self-assessment, And it's also evidenced in this sowing and reaping principle, verses 6 through 10. Paul again writes, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, we contrast this with 526. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. The opposite of envy is this selfless, generous, 
giving, sharing, and sowing that we see illustrated in our text today. Uh, the fortunes that our fortunes, when we are walking in the Spirit, the title of our message, our fortunes are invested in eternal rewards. Our fortunes, our idea of hope and a fulfilling life, are not invested in coveting temporal gains. This allows the church to thrive in several ways. Number one is illustrated by a generous heart that gives of our means for the advancing of the gospel. We give to what we value. Brief illustration. I've often joked about the huge thermometers on the wall with the red line on it, and the more money is given into the building fund, you know, you paint that line higher. Why do churches have those? Because it's a motivation. We all feel like we're accomplishing something. We like to see that uh, red line go higher and higher. The real shame in the American church is that, I'll bet you, the thermometers on the wall, more often than not, correspond to material things. And don't uh, take my words as too dismissive. I know that there's material needs that serve the cause of the gospel. However, it can illustrate this, that people give to what they value. What do we value, church? Do we value big presentable buildings? Do we value big uh, emotional experiences? Do we value the comfortable life of the world baptized with a Christian bumper sticker? Or do we value the things that only eternity, only the next life can really show us a return on? Are we willing to stand in a wicked culture that rejects our message, persecuted, marginalized all the while, without so much as a single obvious to our eyes convert? Jeremiah was willing to do so. Isaiah was willing to do so. And God hardened the hearts of their hearers so that faithfulness for them, walking in the Spirit for them, meant that they did not base their success of ministry or their efforts in their life of what they could tangibly receive by way of, you know, well-populated churches and fancy buildings and comfortable living and so on and so forth. Isaiah and Jeremiah had to be motiva- motivated by rewards that were bigger than this life. As our heart gets changed toward this end, then we will walk in verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. This speaks of sharing within the body of Christ, acknowledging the value of gospel ministry with our generous giving. Of course, this means your tithes and offerings. I'm always nervous about this uh, you know, in preaching because, you know, just on the surface it might appear self-serving. The pastor benefits in some way from what the people give, but that's the wrong way of looking at it. Ultimately, the kingdom of God benefits by your sacrificial giving. As a more comfortable illustration for me, let's choose mercy, for instance. Our missionary that we are hoping to raise money for so that he can have a car to reach these lost uh, uh, people and children, uh, orphans and widows and so forth, in that country of a personal connection there. As you give generously so that mercy can have a car, you realize I may never see that car. I may never drive that car. I may have, I may be one less car payment away from owning my own car. But as I do that, it's a step of faith. It's a, it's a step in, the wa- in walking by the Spirit. It demonstrates that our fortunes, when we're walking in the Spirit, are invested in eternal rewards, not coveting temporal gains. This is love illustrated, is it not, among other things. 
sharing with the body at our own personal expense, looking more out for the needs of the kingdom than our own comfort level, love illustrated, joy illustrated. When we are sowing to the Spirit, uh, when one sows to the Spirit, verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will by the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. How is this connected to joy, for instance? Well, you can live your life, as I mentioned before, under duress, in a prison in China, with tortured for your faith, held unjustly, without due process for the crime of simply proclaiming lovingly and faithfully with compassion and tears in your eyes the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, like Paul and Silas, when you are incarcerated for that act of obedience to the law of Christ, you can sing praises in the jail. Paul and Silas did not praise the Lord in order for the walls to come down. There was no magic formula that some kind of harebrained, you know, teacher might misuse, twist the text and say, praise the Lord and your jail walls will come down or whatever they might want to draw from that text. They were worshiping the Lord because He was worthy whether they were in jail, recovering from whip stripes on their back, or whether they were preaching before crowds of thousands we could hear a pin drop or worshiped as gods in the streets of Ephesus and so forth. Why or how was this possible? Because their joy was bound to eternal rewards. And so it is. When we, ex- when we sow, when we put our efforts into the future reaping and harvest that we may not even see until after glory, but trusting God all the while, we can have an indefatigable joy. That's a fun word to say, indefatigable. It took me forever to learn how to pronounce that. It means it can't grow tired. Thanks for putting up with one of my favorite words. Third point, sowing and reaping closes with goodness illustrated. Doing good, especially to Christians. Several references in our text today. As we see, God is not mocked forever or for whatever one sows, that he will also reap, verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Then notice verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Goodness illustrated. Christian goodness requires endurance because it's not always met with a thank you. It's not always met with a reciprocated, you know, appreciation uh, by the, the gratitude on the other line. It's doing good, even when that goodness is overlooked, when it's despised, when it's not appreciated, when it seems like it's a thankless job. Let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Perseverance and goodness go hand in hand. Verse 6, 18, 10, excuse me. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, this, there's a trend, there's a, a sort of, uh, what's the word, fetish? I would go so strong as to say that. That's been creeping into the evangelical church of late. It's this idea of social justice. If you do not care for the poor, uh, you should be ashamed of yourself as a Christian if you do not care. And understand, some of these have an air or they have some overlap with our calling as believers. 
But usually what takes place is, much like other things, the culture reserves the right to define when, to whom, and to how goodness looks like. And so what what ends up at the end of the day is basically it's a uh, campaign speech to vote for the person who will steal more money from those who are in the upper middle class and redistribute it to the lower and so on and so forth. So the question is this, is this goodness? Or is it virtuous to spill all your means for causes of poverty without any, uh, without any um, assessment of the uh, benefit of those efforts, you know, secular humanitarian uh, ministers, or not ministers, secular humanitarian organizations and nonprofits and so forth? Well, the Scripture provides us an example of goodness applied. And it says so by prioritizing those who are actually of the household of faith. The world will hate this message. But the Scriptures say that do good to everyone, yes, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, much like your own family, you have a first responsibility and priority to the family of God. And this is the way that goodness is to take place. Yes, we are to reach out beyond the walls of the church, but we are to do so decently and in order as God has prescribed it. And so we see, illustrated by these principles, by these examples, the fruit of the Spirit in real time. Fruit of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit means serving others, assessing ourselves, and sowing and reaping principle that it's according to God's Word. Now, there's a lot that we can focus on and apply from our passages today. And you might ask, gosh, that seems like an overwhelming call. How can I have sufficient motivation, inspiration to walk in a manner worthy of our call, worthy of my call to walk by the Spirit? Answer to this question goes back to the very first pages of Galatians. So let's close there today and transition to communion. Notice Galatians 1.1. How does Paul introduce his letter in the first place? He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I mentioned briefly before that Paul emphasized, reiterates, and models patterns of gospel living. You might ask yourself more particularly, how do I have grace, motivation, inspiration to bear with the failings of others? We can bear with others when we remember how Christ has bared with us, if you will, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present age. Christ bore our sins on His bruised, broken, and bloody back. Christ bore our sins on the nail wounds that, drove, that were driven straight through each palm and straight through each foot. Christ bore our sins as a crown of thorns was crushed into his brow and the mockery ensued, hail, King of the Jews, as the precious substance from his incarnate form was shed for the remission of our sins. We might ask ourselves, why do we return to the communion table? The answer is the same. 
Because in returning to the communion table, we're returning to the motivation, the inspiration, the source, the beginning of all. Walking in godliness means remembering the sacrificial death of Christ our Lord. And so to the table, we return this day. Remember Him, saints, as you who are believers come to His table and approach these elements this day and partake of them as well. All of this is to deliver us from the present evil age. And this is encouraging. We have in these words that we've read today that have been proclaimed in our hearing sufficient ground to stand, suitable armaments against the enemy of our souls. But this doesn't speak well of us in the first place, does it? This is according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And let the final word be that any mark of godliness in your own life that I pray comes by the Spirit's use of this proclamation today. If someone is to notice that, point it out, may you turn the glory and the attention to the Lord and say, it is by grace alone that there is any godliness in me. And remember the price that was paid for you to walk by the Spirit, to fulfill the law of Christ, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you that we are welcome in Christ to the table spread before us this day. This is no small thing. Communion, fellowship in the presence of an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-just, all-righteous God. This would not be possible unless a sufficient price was paid, unless the full and final sacrifice, Christ, had been decreed in time, and now He has come. We remember His death on our behalf today. We remember the price that was paid for us to walk according to the instructions, the directives that we have received from Your Scripture today. As we approach Your table, I pray that You would write deeply upon our souls the reality of the gospel of Christ that without His broken body, without His shed blood, our sins condemn us and hell awaits us. But in Him, in His resurrection, in His victory over death, we have eternal life. In His suffering, the wrath that we deserved, we have freedom. We are free indeed. Thank You, Lord, for these truths. We pray that You would be glorified in every aspect of this service as we worship You and at communion at the communion table this day. In Jesus' name, amen.